the parameters move out a little bit this week. It was what Christianity looks like in the church, in the church family. Just scan your eyes over those first couple of words. And we move out in some respects of those parameters. We are to be subject to rulers and authorities. We are to slander no one. We are to show humility to all men. So we've moved from a little bit. And what this passage would say to us, whatever we're going to learn about in Titus chapter 3, is not just what we've got to do to our mums and dads, or our brothers and sisters, or the rest of our church. This is what we've got to do in public. This is what it's got to look like for everyone. Uh, Woody Allen's got a film out at the moment. I don't know if you're into films. I have three kids and I never get out of the house so I can't watch them and I'm sad enough to still be bothered to read the synopsises about them. This film is a typical Woody Allen film. It's pretty dark and this, you know, this feels ridiculous talking to you about this. It's from a synopsis. I've not even seen the film. It might be really dodgy so it's not a recommendation but underscoring the film was this question. What's the point of being moral in an immoral world? As the film develops in the synopsis, it, the more and more it becomes apparent that it's just not helpful. It's just not getting this irrational man in the film's called this character anywhere by being moral. He gets there much quicker by joining in with the immorality. What is the point of being moral in an immoral world? Have you ever asked yourself that question as a Christian? What is the point in me bothering with this against this tide of bad behavior I guess the Bible would use the word in Romans this pattern of the world just this huge flow of bad behavior would anybody notice us trying to behave differently is there any point to us doing this Freshers Week just the other week and I know a few people that were in Freshers Week. And I just, I guess I had a picture in my mind of a young Christian who was convicted the week before they went to Freshers Week about the need to be pure and a call to purity. And then they get to Freshers Week and there's just this avalanche. You can do whatever you want on Freshers Week. Everything's fine. There's no rules anymore. Will anybody see this young Christian who is living out some of these characteristics, doing whatever is good, slandering no one? Will anybody see this happen under this wave? Is there any point? to you behaving in this way that honors God in this backdrop or should you just join in with the immorality nobody will know right showing humility on the career ladder is there any benefit you want to get to the top with your job is there any benefit in you living out any of these values up here doing whatever is good slandering no one is that going to get you anywhere will that get you to the top of the career ladder or should you just join in with the rat race. Um, establishing good Christian values with your children. We spend all day at home, don't we, as parents saying to our kids, don't say that word. Definitely don't say that word. That's not a word you should even know yet. We say things like that. And we send them off to school and then they come back. Miriam came back and I've shared this with one or two people and used it an expression I had never even heard before to compliment herself as she looked at herself in the mirror. It was horrible. And I said, where did you get that? And he said, everybody says that at school. What is the point in us behaving with these values? Does anybody see? It was a bit like that for the Christians on Crete. There was, if we look as the passage goes down, there, there was some real darkness amongst the people there. Some real pagan things going on. And they were under heavy Roman influence. Is there any point in these Christians living in a certain way? And Paul writes to Titus and says, yes. 
Yes, there is. So the passage we come to today would tell us, in the face of really difficult circumstances, there's still merit in us trying to live out godly values. I want to encourage you with that sentiment. There's real value in us holding on to some of these values that the world doesn't really recognize. The passage breaks up, and you won't see it, I guess, with this slide, but the passage breaks up. The first couple of verses are what we should do, and the last little chunk is what we should do. And then the bit in the middle is this beautiful, concise account of the whole gospel story. It's like Romans squeezed into a few verses. Let's just run through the checklist there. And I might run through this checklist, and you might be able to get up five minutes into the sermon and say, I'm all right, I'm doing all that stuff. And if that's you, you can go if you want. If, if, if you pass all these, you know, all these characteristics and you've got it covered, then, then feel free to leave. We won't think any less of you. The first one, be subject and obedient. Um, this, I've read this over and over, and it's, if, it's hard for me. If you're a Labour support around here and you vote Labour and you don't vote Tory, that might be quite difficult to teach this verse. But if you are living, if you're a Christian living in a Muslim state or living with ISIS as your authority, what do you do with this verse? How do you deal with this verse? We have to remind ourselves that the Bible is writing into specific circumstances. And I guess as Matthew reminded us last week, when we're talking about slavery, the Bible's not condoning slavery any more than it's condoning an invading force coming in and, and, ruin, and ruling your land oppressively. But it's writing into a specific circumstance and it's saying, in this circumstance, this is how you be a Christian. We have to be subject to the rulers and authorities above us. There's a reason for it. We have to be ready to do good. I did a bit of a word search, word search, word study into this expression. And the, the sense of it is that you are like at the start of a race, prepped and ready to do good. And I reflected, I thought, is that the start of my good actions? Am I just eager to do good? And as I reflected on it, I thought, actually, no. When I do something good, I say something like, oh, go on then. Or something needs done at church and it's needed done for four months and eventually I'm like, right, nobody else is doing it. Begrudgingly, I would do it. The sense with this word is that we are to be like, what's the guy on The Simpsons? Ned Flanders, I think he's called. Just desperate to do good, just all the time, to jump on it. Like as soon as the bang goes for the start of the race, you're going to be on it. That's the challenge for us. So you can see, hopefully, as we describe these characteristics of the Christian, that the bar's just getting higher and higher. We are to slander no one. Now you're probably thinking, that's fine. I'm not at threat of going to jail. I've never slandered anybody in my life. Have you gossiped about people? Have you talked badly about somebody? It's so difficult, isn't it, not when there's an opportunity for a cheap laugh to keep your mouth shut. Do you know what I mean? How hard is that when you just think, I could just, I, I can, I've got the perfect thing to say here. And you can't resist, can you? And you throw it in. And the Bible tells us to slander. No one. The Bible speaks really clearly about the damage that we can do with what comes out of our mouths. If you read through the book of James, he'll tell you there that what you say is like a small spark that lights into a big fire. And if you read that in the context of the Bible, it maybe doesn't seem like such a threat now. We can just throw water at it. But if you get a fire in Bible days, that's the end of the town. That's the end of the village. What, we, what comes out of our mouths 
ruins people. Throw away words can end marriages. Throw away comments can break churches up. We are to slander no one and the bar gets even higher. We are to be peaceable and gentle. I've got a really wrong sense of what this word gentle means. I think it's probably how we use it as a culture today. I think of somebody soft, somebody who I can exploit. Do you know what I mean? When you think of this word gentle, and that's not how we should think of this word gentle. It's actually got a real strength to it. When I studied the word, it said, it's somebody who is able to be legalistically right, and yet for the greater good, wave his rights. Somebody who can be legalistically in the right and say, for the greater good, just keep his mouth shut. How hard is that when you're arguing with your wife? And you know, you think, I'm I'm right. I, I know that I'm right. How impossible is it to not speak and not say something in those circumstances? We can't help ourselves, can we? So this is the checklist. To be subject and obedient, to be ready to do good, to slander no one, to be peaceable, to be gentle. And these we are to do, not just amongst each other at church, not just amongst our church family. We are to do this to everyone. This is what we're to look like when the world's looking at us. So you make no wonder then that the first word that we come to in our text is remind. Because the Cretan Christians are going to need reminded of this because they're going to forget it. In the circumstances, the blackness and the bleakness that they're faced with under Roman rule, with all this pagan sacrifice around them, these young Christians are going to need to be reminded. I did a word study into this word as well, reminded. And it's not like a one-off reminder. Do you know, like you say, will you shut the door, love? Or something like that on your way out. It's a, I know that my wife's going to forget to shut the door every time she leaves the room. So I'm going to say, you need to shut the door. And my mind will constantly be that. It's a, the verb, it's a present continuous verb. So we have to think of this sense as we're going to have to keep reminding people of this. This is going to be a list of characteristics that you're going to have to go back to over and over again. I don't know about you, but in my Christian life, when I have a rubbish day, or when the wheels come off, or when I've had a fallout with somebody, or when I've seen a bad example, I still come to church. And I'll still read my Bible in the bath. And I'll still pray. But this stuff, I forget. This stuff I can forget if somebody cuts me up on the way to work, to be humble, to be gentle, to be kind. Somebody cuts me up, and all that's gone. And I'll still be at church, and I'll still read my Bible in the bath. But this list of Christian characteristics is gone in a heartbeat. There are some things we need to be reminded of, aren't there? And these are some of those things. Um, I was round at my mum and dad's house the other week, and we were talking about my grand marshal, who is, um, I think, 15 years passed away. And as the conversation went, you might have experienced this in your life as well. And as mum and, as mum and dad were talking, they'd realised that I'd forgotten a lot about Grandma Marshall. And I was a bit, you know, a bit caught out, and there were some things that I couldn't quite remember. I mean, I could see that my mum was really upset. And so she would just, you know that way mums do, she would just tell story after story after story after story about my Grandma Marshall and about her generosity. And she just was exploring her characteristics, one story after another. Do you remember when she did this? Do you remember when she got stuck in the loo and we couldn't get her out? Do you remember when she did this? Do you remember when she bought you loads of stuff for Christmas? And the more she explored 
her character, the clearer the picture of her became in my head. What Paul's doing, what he's writing to Titus here, he's listing this list of characteristics. He's saying, look, Christianity, I don't know what you think it is, but read through this list of traits. Does this remind you of anyone? Is this, is this familiar? Don't just think it's about going to church. Don't just think it's about stopping doing some things. Don't just think it's about what you wear. It's about Christ. He's saying, remember being humble? Remember being gentle? Remember somebody who was peaceful? Remember somebody who was subject to rulers and authorities? This is about Christ. Often with me, my behavior is shaped by my circumstance. Something bad happens to me, I respond badly. The passage would tell us that we shouldn't be shaped, and it's easy to say it and harder to do it, by our circumstance, but we should be shaped and transformed by God's act of grace. That's what should define us. That's what we should respond to as we live out our Christianity. Being obedient, being ready to do good, speaking well of people, not bad, being peaceful, gentle, and humble. There aren't many rewards for this behavior. You're not going to become more popular because you stop, you stop gossiping about people. You're not going to climb the career ladder quicker by being humble. There's no humble staff member of the week award. This kind of behavior is going to be largely overlooked in your life. But what you will do, and I don't know if it's possible to pop that first slide on mine, what you will do in a world where the tide of behavior flows so obviously in one direction, by behaving like this, you'll be the one person who's walking the other way, pointing back to Christ through what you do. It's like you can say, look, it's this way. This is the way. I'm happy that everybody else is going that way. This is the way. So when we live this out, we point the way to Christ. You might say, I'm not sure that's going to work, Ash. I'm not sure that people will see Christ in that. There was a shooting in America. In fact, there's shootings in America a lot. So I tried to think of a specific example, and I could think of lots. There was one in a church. A young guy came in, shot a lot of people. And almost immediately... Um, it was an Afro-Caribbean church there. You know, I think the pastor's wife came out at the end and she said something that was just completely unpalatable to me. I just couldn't, I couldn't accept it. And I'm somebody who wants to be an assistant pastor. She said, I forgive him. Straight away. Straight off the bat. Completely countercultural behavior. And when I watched that, even though I found it unpalatable, I thought the only logical explanation for that is that this woman's got God and she sees God's grace. There's no other explanation when we bear out these characteristics we point the way back to God in a world that's forgotten about him verse 3 says at one time we too were foolish disobedient deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures we lived in malice and envy being hated and hating one another but when the kindness and love of our savior appeared he saved us not because of the righteous things we had done but because of his mercy. I want you just to see how black that list is, where these Cretan Christians had come from. At one time, we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hated one another. See, what Paul's doing here, really cleverly, just tearing a layer back and saying, don't forget, don't start to think that you're all right now and it's like something that you've done. This is you 
This is what you look like without Christ. It's just Christ in you that makes you look like this. Do you know that way when in Star Wars, uh, Darth Vader rips his, his mask off and there's that horrible looking face underneath? It's like, that's you without Christ. It's just Christ in you. Don't get on your religious high horse. Don't forget that you were once like this. Don't forget that. Because the beauty of our story is seen best in the full picture of our salvation. It's not seen best in just how we are now. It's what God has taken us from. Um, There was a time in our lives where Jude would often go out on a Thursday night and DIY SOS would be on. And I would tell the kids they could come downstairs, which my wife would be really unpleased about, unhappy about, and we would cry our eyes out watching DIY SOS together. Uh, I remember the first time that they watched it, I wasn't expecting, you know, I was just, I was sat there and I looked across and there were three kids that were just a wreck by the end of DIY SOS. Often I'll watch the last quarter of an hour of it and I'll still cry because I'm soft. But essentially what's happened is Nick Knowles is showing people around their house that now looks a bit better than it did before. And you get a, you get a sense of a good story. But if you watch the story from the beginning and you see the disaster that was their house, the light fittings that could never work, the walls that were falling down, and you heard the story of just how messed up and screwed up their lives were, and then you see where they were at the end, you realize more fully the act of grace that was the community coming together and fixing the house up. It's better presented when you see the mess at the beginning and what, what happened at the end. It's easy, I think, for us as Christians to make the mistake of thinking that our righteous position that we enjoy is something that we've done by ourselves. It's some place we've got to, because of our genetic makeup or our family upbringing or our own efforts, that's rubbish. It's all about what Christ has done. It's all about his grace. It's all about the cross. It's the only reason that you're not living a terrible life. It's Jesus that changes us. End of. And the message for the Cretan Christians is just this. To remember the full story of their salvation. Don't forget, without Christ, you were once a real mess too. It's only because of Christ. There's a text a motorway text on the A1. I don't know how much time you spend on the A1. If you drive, I think there's one on the M62 as well, actually. So if you're driving northbound on the, on the A1, it's on your left-hand side. And it reads, Jesus Christ came into the world. Shouldn't really have to check that, should I? Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Um, and I used to drive that way a lot, and I still do. And, when I, and it's good, and it's truth. And often I'll... I'll do a little holy than now, amen, or whatever. And it points me back in the right direction as I'm driving down the road. But as I look at it, I can't help but wonder if, if they've missed a trick. I don't know how well you know your, your Bibles, but the verse goes on to say, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. It's Paul writing, and he says, of which I am the worst. It goes on to say, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me... The worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe. So in Paul's full story, we see best how God turned him around. I met a guy at college last week. Um, I was at Bible college last week, and there's a a guy who's there from France called Olivier. He's a lot of fun. 
he's going to really struggle because his English is terrible and he's just, he's a new Christian. He's been a Christian for about six months. So he's at Bible college and he's just like, I'm going to go, I'm going to find out more about the Bible. I don't think he aspires to be a pastor or anything. He just wants to learn about the Bible. He's inspiring. It's going to be very difficult for him writing essays because he doesn't know much English and his body's covered in tattoos. And one of the lecturers kind of said to him, are you going to do anything about your, you know, because it's covered, it's covered in tattoos and some of them aren't very pleasant to look at. And, he, he, and it was brilliant. He turned around and he sort of said, no, this is me. This is what I was like. And I'm going in another direction now. He didn't want to ignore that like it had never happened. He wanted people to know that he had a past and it was Christ that had changed him. I think it's good for us as we live out our Christian faith, not just to do it from some lofty religious perch that we've put ourselves on, but to remember that we've got there on the coattails of our Savior Jesus Christ. It's nothing to do with us. Verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. And I think I, I mentioned at the start, if, if you can't be bothered to read Romans, and you should be bothered to read the book of Romans, this is it in a concise form. We were separated from God by the wrong in our lives. We're not made good by ourselves, but because of God's mercy. He appeared and saved us. He sanctified us through his spirit. We are justified by his grace. We share his inheritance of eternal life. And then we serve. We do good to others because he did good to us. Paul says, I want you to get this. It's really important that you get this picture. It's really important that you understand the gospel really clearly. I want to stress this. Look, this is the gospel. I'm going to make it really clear. I want to draw your eye to it. This is what it is. And the reason I want to draw your eye to it, I want you to be really, really be saved and really get it and really understand what it means. Because if that happens, there's only one thing that's going to happen. You're going to do good things. I'm not going to have to teach you to do good things. I'm not going to have to tell you what doing good things looks like. If you're saved, if you get this, if you really buy into it, then you're going to do good things. Good things are just going to happen. There's a picture, I think, as we look at these verses, it's made really clear. It's kind of, somebody who's dead, is made alive. Somebody who's dirty, is made clean. We are washed. Paul kind of mixes some metaphors up for us here, but he's painting a picture, I think. We are washed by rebirth, we are renewed. And I guess when we think of baptism, we think of somebody who's dropped into the water and brought back up again. Somebody who's died to their former way of life and is going to live again for Christ. I guess as God looks down on us, he, he sees this, what's happened. And maybe as he, as he checks us out, he says, hang on, you should be living different now. This is what's happened to you. You've, you've, got, you've got this. You understand the gospel. You understand that I sent my son for you. You've been washed. You've been renewed. You should live different now. I do the bathing of the kids. It's one of the few um, things I bring to the game as a parent. 
and I'm really rubbish at it. I, I don't care. I'll admit. I go upstairs, I turn the tap on, I sit next to the radiator, I pull out a book, and I shout, get in the bath, kids. And I assume that 45 minutes later, they're all going to be clean, and I've got out of the bath, and I'm still there reading my book, and I hope that's, that's what's happened. Later on in the evening, my wife will come through, and she'll say, Ash, did you, did you wash the kids? Because Miriam's leg is, is filthy. And I'm found out, and I'm exposed as a bad parent, because she hasn't been washed. The reason that she's not clean, because she hasn't been washed. I wonder, as we live our Christian lives, how we're living when God looks in. If we've been washed, if we've been renewed, and it's a real challenge, we should be clean. We should be living differently. We should be changing. We should be responding to the Holy Spirit in our lives. What are the hallmarks of a Christian? Is it church attendance? Um, Is it how eloquently you speak? Is it your Bible knowledge? Is it the fact that you've been coming to the the church for a hundred years? I would say, show me one person who is changed and being changed by God at work in their lives, and I'll say, there's one for sure. I'm not sure about these, maybe, but there's one for sure. Verse 9. Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. So these controversies and arguments that were circulating. um, And what was happening, and I guess what Paul is writing into is the fact that these people are just very busily being religious. They're not necessarily being Christian. They're just getting lost in religious rants and arguments. The controversies that we're talking about, um, I think Noel, Noel talked about it in the first week, were they were, the Jewish Christians were asking the, the, the Gentile Christians to be circumcised, basically to do something Jewish just to make sure you're a Christian. And they were arguing about this. They were arguing about genealogies, genealogies. And, you know, just spending all their time consumed with, you know, whose family line was from who, where they descended from. They were, like, totally occupied and lost in this world. Now, I don't think when the Bible says avoid this, it's saying don't ever talk about genealogies. I've spent a week at college and it's all we talked about because it's not insignificant. It's important. The fact that there was a, a prostitute in the line of Jesus, the fact that there was a non-Gentile in the line of Jesus, the fact that there were women in the line of Jesus, it's important. But if this is all you talk about, if being religious is all you're bothered about, then how does that help the kingdom? I think there's a clear message from Titus and from Timothy in both these pastoral letters that these arguments shouldn't happen at the expense of the church. They shouldn't happen at the expense of the kingdom. And Paul contrasts, particularly in Timothy, if, you, if you've got your Bible with you or you can flick back, people who have devoted themselves to arguments and myths about genealogies with people who are doing good. Paul's really pointing them in the right direction. He's saying, no, don't spend all your time doing that Spend your time trying to do good. And the word avoid literally means turn your back on these people. My kids um, argue a lot. Sometimes me and Judah will be downstairs and they'll just hear this melee of noise upstairs. 
and, and you think that this must be serious. This is, you know, this is a lot of noise. Somebody must be dead here or something like that. And you go upstairs and it's about Lego and it's about a yellow piece of Lego and they're ready to kill about a yellow piece of Lego. And you think as a parent, you think, I'm, I don't know where I've gone wrong bringing you up because this is not worth arguing about. You're missing the point. We need to go down the road to see mum and dad in half an hour anyway. That's the point. The point is not the yellow bit of Lego. That's not the point. You're missing the point. Does it ever happen with you where you forget what you're arguing about? I'm rubbish for this. Me and Jude will be having arguments. Not all the time. We love each other. But occasionally we have arguments. And, And from my end, I've forgotten what we're arguing about. And it's embarrassing. And I'll have to say, look, Jude, stop. I'm really struggling to make a strong argument here because I can't even remember where we started off. Do you ever get that way? You just, you can't even remember. The argument's not that important. You just forget what you started arguing about. And arguments escalate, don't they? Does this happen with you? It starts off about being something legitimate in your life, something that actually you probably need to resolve in your life, and you end up saying stuff that happened years ago. You've dug something up way from the past that you'd forgotten about, and the, ex- the arguments build and build and build, and you end up saying something awful, and sometimes from these arguments, you just think, I'm not sure there's a way back here. I'm not sure how we're going to make friends again. Have you ever wondered what an argument looks like from God's point of view? Have you ever wondered what, when we fall out in church, what that looks like to God? God who flung the stars into space, God who's got this plan of salvation to bring everybody back to him, and he looks down, and we're arguing about the small print, and it's more than that. Actually, we've totally lost this sense of God's big plan and we're just totally preoccupied with the small print the small print dominates the landscape of our lives and the kingdom and bringing people to Jesus is forgotten about do you ever wonder how ridiculous that must look from God's point of view think arguing about genealogies when there are lost people scattered throughout escape is a bit like getting a day ticket for the Sistine Chapel and arguing with a guy about the grouting in the loo it's a bit like getting a ticket for the World Cup final with your mate and spending all the 90 minutes of the match wondering whether the ref's going grey or not. If that's what you're doing at these things, you've kind of missed the point. Let's not be people who argue about religious things. Let's be people who are ready on our tiptoes at the bang of a gun to do something good. Why? Because that'll point people back to Jesus. Not to dismiss debate, not to dismiss us sharpening each other, but to completely dismiss us spending all our time doing religious things when we can point people back to Christ. Just to round things up, I want to bring us back to the cross. I don't know if you could put the first verse back up on the text, Martin. In Hebrews, when there's a passage that says, when we feel weak and unable to carry on, fix your eyes on Jesus. And I just thought I'd run through this list of characteristics that reminds us of Jesus and think of him on the cross. Um, just to point us back in the right direction as we go home. To be subject to rulers and authorities. Jesus modeled this. You ever thought about this? You ever thought about where Jesus came from? It says in Philippians that he came from the glory of heaven and he made himself, and the word is nothing, made himself nothing and he subjected himself to the rulers and authorities. You ever thought about what that must have been like for Jesus that he stood before the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Romans who had seemingly authority over him. You ever thought about what's going on there? Just the amount of bigger picture plan that Jesus has in that moment to not just wipe them out, 
he made himself subject to rulers and authorities. When you're struggling in your faith, think about that. He was obedient. You ever thought about Gethsemane? And Jesus is there. Apparently, we read in the Bible that he shed, he shed drop, drops of blood. Um, I remember reading in a, in a history book that World War II pilots that would come back from the, the bombing raids would come back and the, the symptoms would be similar to that. Apparently, their pores would be oozing blood out the side of their pores because they were so afraid. Jesus was obedient to his calling, obedient to death. He was peaceable as he hung on the cross. Um, having done nothing wrong, he makes peace. And as he looks out at the people who are happy to see him on the cross, he says, what does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He was gentle. Do you remember we described what a gentle person was? Somebody who could be legalistically in their rights and yet waves that right for the sake of the bigger picture. Jesus could have had angels pull him off the cross. But in the most powerful way I think you can ever imagine, he let them bang nails into his hands. He was legalistically speaking the last person that should have had to die on a cross. If you could list everybody from the beginning of time to now, you'd have Jesus at one end and you'd say, no, he's been the best. He doesn't need to do this. He could make a pretty strong argument for not needing to be the person who was put on a cross. And yet, as he stood before his accusers, he didn't open his mouth. When we're struggling to live out these values, when we think that being humble and gentle is getting us nowhere, let's remember our Savior. Let's spend five minutes gazing at the cross and that will help us to remember what we're about and what we should be doing.